I'm a reasonably intelligent person, and I'm a teacher of social studies, and 20 years ago I used to teach world history. That included the story of British colonialism, Gandhi, Nehru, the conflict between India and Pakistan over Kashmir, but unfortunately, the knowledge that I have about India pretty much stops in the 1940s. And that is a really bad thing. So I thought, why not have an expert on India who is not only from India, but also whose life's work is about promoting the interests of India and educating people on the subject matter. So for today's podcast, I'm going to be asking a whole lot of ignorant questions of Aman Thacker, who was my former student back in the day and uh, just one of the brightest people I know. Let's settle this once and for all. Can you say your name, please? All right. So it's Aman Thacker. Uh, I've switched it from Aman to Aman more recently, which is two short A's, uh, sh short syllables. Uh, but I'm also fine with Aman. It's just something that's emerged, I think, as you've become more aware about how names get pronounced. So Aman is probably the most accurate from India, but I also equally love Aman. So whatever you slip into is fine. So a follow-up question, which is kind of about the immigrant experience did you ever feel frustrated, uh, angry, or something else when uh, people would either be unable to pronounce your name or unwilling to try even after you made it clear to them what the actual pronunciation was? I think, well, I it's, it's never been too much of a problem if people at least can get Aman, but I think if people just straight up go for another name, like... I've gotten Adam, I've gotten Amar, uh, Ahmed, I don't know. I've gotten a lot of different names. And that's the part that really upsets because it's like, you're not even trying. It's not even, it's, it's a four letter word. You can't really goof it up that much and it's, it's two syllables. So some people just aren't trying, but if you can get Amon, it's fine by me because I actually, I think I've come to like it as, 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 a, as a version of my name too, so. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm less upset if someone can't get exactly Aman because I don't know very few English words that have two back-to-back -back short vowels, so, you know, where, where it's both short. So I know that can be difficult, but Aman is fine. Adam is not. <laughs> that's, my, that's my line. Okay, so perhaps I've stalled long enough and we should get to the proper interview. All I really know about the government is that there's a prime minister. I know his name, and I guess by virtue of the fact that there is a prime minister, there's probably a parliamentary system? Yes. Um, in essence, borrowed very much from Westminster parliamentary system. So that is a very direct, um, you know, uh, transfer from the, you know, holdover from British uh, times. Uh, so yes, prime minister and a council uh, of cabinets, you know, ministers that are appointed uh, two houses of parliament, uh, very similar, I think, in, in structure to, again, the houses of parliament in, in the UK, uh, except the House of Lords is very similar, I would say, to 
the Senate pre uh, 1919 when they you know made it a direct election uh, upper house. So it's still appointed representatives from uh, state legislatures that you know get sent up to the upper house of parliament. So you have a lower house that's almost exactly similar to the UK, which is districts that elect first past the post, you know, uh, members of parliament. And then the upper house is very similar to the, the Senate of yonder years where, you know, you would have the legislature come together, apportion it depending on, you know, what parties were represented in the state legislature. That's how many seats would go, you know, to the upper house. And you would have uh, appointed people that, you know, may not have run for election ever in their lives. Um, and so that's the general structure. We've had on occasion a deputy prime minister, but it's up to each individual prime minister to decide whether they want one. So it's not a, a common position. Uh, and then we do have a president who is uh, nominally kind of entrusted with being the commander in chief and being the figurehead, but has no executive authority. Um, does invite the prime minister to form the government, but doesn't take a, you know, a role in day-to-day -day, uh, execution of policy. Would that be a rough analog to uh, a monarch in the sense that they perform essentially a uh, ceremonial role? Yes, I think maybe a, just just a bit more substance than the king and the queen, because I think they also appoint the chief justices and, you know, will kind of sign off on, you know, the key sort of bureaucrat. For, for the sake of protocol, the prime minister will always consult the president and the president will be the decider. But in essence... It is, it is that kind of a function. Um, and I've never kind of seen presidents go beyond that role. I think, you know, you may have seen people watching the crown would have seen, you know, the queen step in and, you know, have her, you know, shoving prime ministers out or, you know, having a say in that. I don't think we've seen that in India's, India's presidential system. Uh, but yes, in, in that sense, yes, very much a, a ceremonial role, unlike, you know, the president here. What are the powers of the prime minister? Is that equivalent to the British prime minister? Very similar to the British prime minister in that, you know, has the authority to create the government, set budgets, work with ministers to, you know, have uh, policy being uh, directed, has, you know, all of the civil servants reporting upwards to, you know, uh, from, from civil servants report up to, you know, the chief cabinet secretary reports directly to the prime minister. So he sets, you know, the direction of policy um, and is, uh, you know, the, the, in effect, the leader of the house. So he, you know, much like the UK system will go to parliament, uh, answer questions. There's not quite that dramatic flair of prime minister's questions. Like the UK has it, you know, facing off in the deposit box, but the prime minister will go and will make a speech and will hear questions and, um, uh, you know, is accountable to parliament and is, is the leader of, of, of the majority. Um, and, you know, faces those very real constraints of, you know, uh, uh, keeping the party in order, there can be defections, the governments can't fall short of their five-year term if you don't have a majority, we have a razor-thin majority. Uh, you can't have minority governments in the same way that the UK does. Uh, so in that sense, you know, that, that, that part is, is very similar. Um, uh, and you had, you've had, I think, in this sense, Modi is uh, an outlier in India in having his party be in the majority. We've had a long string, I would say, since 84 of minority governments or coalition governments. Uh, and that's very common. You know, you'll see governments being threatened by withdrawal of certain parties from the alliance or things like that, which, you know, anyone looking at UK politics would, would kind of find that uh, very similar. How is the president elected in India? Is it a national election? 
the president is elected. That's a good. Yeah, it is not a national election. It is uh, through the houses of parliament that they select the president. So each party will put forth their candidate. Each major party will put forth. Each alliance will put forth a candidate, and you know a co- combination of members of the you know lower house, the upper house, and then select. I think also the state legislatures. There's a the entire body politic kind of comes together and votes. Um, so I think each of the states also has some voting rights in it, the state legislatures, and then the upper and lower house of parliament will elect. So it's an indirect election for for president, but uh, states and the central kind of central government members of parliament will have uh, their voice heard. So not, you know, your assemblyman will also have a voice and your member of parliament will also have a voice in the same way that in New Jersey, the assemblyman and the, you know, the member of the House of Congress would vote for president. That's it's a very unique system in that regard to have representation in those rooms. So in trying to pin this down, is that the same process as the prime minister election? No, the prime minister is elected in a nationwide election um, and is usually the leader of the party that gets the majority. So, you know, you'll have he will run for election in one particular constituency. So, for example, Prime Minister Modi runs from the Varanasi constituency in, in Uttar Pradesh, uh, but he is invited by the 300 or 300 or more members of uh, parliament that belong to his party, the, the BJP, to say we have, you know, because we're the majority, we have been asked to create the government and we're looking to you to lead the government. And so you are the prime ministerial uh, candidate. Some parties tend to declare who the prime minister is going into the election. So I think uh, in 2019 and 2014, when when Modi was running, he was known that he was going to be the prime ministerial face. Uh, In 2014, the opposition Congress did not declare a prime ministerial face. They said, we will deal with this decision if we get the majority. Uh, But in 2019, they did have a prime ministerial face, and that was uh, Rahul Gandhi, the great-grandson of Nehru. Um, And so... uh, that, that you may know who the prime minister is going in, you may not. Famously, in 2004, Manmohan Singh was a surprise candidate. He came out of nowhere, uh, was not on anyone's mind uh, to be the prime minister, and he was sort of selected after the elections were done. So it has happened as early as, you know, 15 years ago or 16 years ago. Let's talk a little bit more about parliament for a moment. What are the size of the two houses um, I believe around 540 or so in the lower house of parliament, and then another 300 or so in the upper house. I, I'm blanking on the exact numbers, but that's about the general size of, uh, of parliament. Um, You're going to fail my AP Indian government and politics class. <laughs> I would have come prepared with the exact numbers that I know when I was taking a test, but uh, I would say about 530, 540, something like that. So that's nearly commensurate with the uh, House of Representatives with the upper house being about three times the size. And Uh, there's plans, sorry, just to extend the lower house to a thousand members. So that is a conversation that's underway as we do the new census and the current government has kind of said that that's something that they want to do. We'll see if that actually happens. Oh, that's really interesting because as you probably know, in the United States, we haven't extended or increase the size of the House of Representatives since the early part of the 20th century, despite a huge population surge, uh, or at least a a large population increase. Um, And it raises the question about, uh, you know, since you're talking about 
uh, possibly a massive change in the Indian government. Can you explain how that's possible in the Indian system, whereas, of course, it would be so difficult to make such a change in the United States? Well, the, the, the positive sense of making big structural reforms and changes like that in India is that there is no mismatch or split government, uh, as you see in the United States. So, you know, because the party in power will have a majority in parliament and then will also have the prime minister who sets decision and the ministers will all belong to the same party or the alliance, you can generally get stuff done because you'll have the votes to, you know, get stuff too. That's the only way that you can uh, run the government in India is, you know, you'll, you'll pass stuff through parliament and you'll have to show your, your might. Uh, and so in that sense, there is limited space for the opposition to try and block or prevent legislation from being passed in the way that you see here, where, you know, houses are split. Or... Now, the upper house, that has happened because it's appointed by state legislatures and elections happen every, indirect elections happen every two years. The upper house can be split from the lower house and that can slow things down. But I think, you know, uh, and, and now we've gotten to a point where, you know, even even the BJP and, and Modi's party has a, hasn't enough uh, strength of the upper house to get their legislation passed. So if they do want to do this, they do have the ability to you know, run it through. And, and there have been controversial legislation in India that has been pushed through parliament with minimal debate uh, because, you know, they've had the numbers to just say, you know, we can, we can pass this on our own without any support from opposition members. And that has sometimes meant they may not even consult the opposition in, in what they would like to see in the legislation. They might just say, we're doing this. We're happy to pass it. We have the numbers. Let's just push it through. Um, but I still think that, you know, India, because a lot of the power, I think, it, it is similarly structured with the U.S. and in the states that have, have a lot of power, there has to be that consultation and the implementation of policy uh, at the state level. You know, you do need to consult the opposition. In that sense, you do find that there is a respect and understanding and, and you know, uh, it's not just going to jam through. There's sort of an institutional design behind preventing laws from just you know, being passed without any without any buy-in from the opposition, um, and in that sense, you know, empowered states is kind of the check on on a and an empowered center. Um, but you know, that doesn't prevent some of these legislation from being from being passed, and I think it helps streamline uh, the government from you know doing what they announce in their manifestos or in the election promises. Usually, they can pass a lot of those things because they have the the brute majority in in the lower house. Is there a written constitution for India? There is a written constitution. It is a very lengthy constitution and has, in fact, been inspired in part by the, by the U.S. Constitution. So uh, uh, B.R. Ambedkar, who is the uh, R. Madison, Jefferson, and <laughs> all the other founding fathers kind of put together the prime architect of, of the Constitution, actually studied at Columbia Law and got his uh, you know, law degree there. And he, I think, pulled together inspiration from the Irish Constitution, from the US Constitution, from the Westminster parliamentary system to design what he thought would be the most uh, appropriate system of governance for India. And so you will see elements of, of the US you know, separated powers, uh, you know, specific powers that are only given to states. That's very much a borrowed concept from what he learned from from the United States, uh, he'll have elements of the Irish Constitution uh, in there, you know, and how states uh, report to center and, and, you know, kind of the provincial to central government relationship. Um, and so those elements are, are, are borrowed from. So he had the option, I think, of, of learning from the constitutions of the world 
and cherry picking things that would work really well for India's system. And it's a fascinating uh, document. In fact, uh, there's a lot of very interesting research happening on India's particular constitution. And if I can recommend a book to listeners, India's Founding Moment, uh, a book by Madhav Kosla, Harvard-educated lawyer who's just begun teaching at a university in India, a uh, fantastic book that kind of goes into why and how India's uh, uh, constitution is, is really, really interesting and, and, uh, and uh, one of the you know, unique facets of India's polity. Uh, so highly recommend people to read that book. How does the amendment process for the Indian constitution differ or, uh, or is it similar to the American constitution, which is nearly impossible uh, to amend, or the New Jersey state constitution, which I think if you blink wrong, uh, they add something to it? It, it, I would say that the process is similar to how the U.S. Constitution is amended in that there's a higher bar for passing it in Parliament and then states need to ratify it. But it happens much more common in India. So, for example, we just amended our Constitution to make room for uh, what is called the goods and services tax, a major piece of legislation that got passed. I would say in, in you know 2017 by the Modi government, what they did in that sense, because they were overhauling the nation's tax laws, uh, was they had to create a new constitutional amendment to allow a, a centrally administered tax. Previously, I think much like the United States, each state can charge their own sales tax. And it was a very hodgepodge confusing system in India because you would have states pass, you know, custom duties to do business from state to state. So, you know, if you had to send a truck from uh, the main city, financial city of India, Mumbai, which is Maharashtra, over to the neighboring state, you might have lines of trucks waiting at the border to get taxes paid and everything clear to go on and produce would rot and all those kinds of issues. And so they instituted this centrally administered goods and services tax. And to do that, they had to actually amend the constitution because that taxation power wasn't vested with the central government. And so that, that happened in 2017. Majority of the states ratified it pretty quickly because they were you know, uh, on board with the, with, the, with the legislation. In fact, uh, majority of India states actually belong to the same party. The you know, majority of these states were run by uh, chief ministers of the same party as the prime minister. So you know, there was an alignment ideologically. And so you could see that passage happen fairly quickly. It, wasn't, it didn't take as long as the ERA to pass you know, a... Uh, uh, a constitutional amendment. It happened in a matter of, uh, of months, if not a year. So you've alluded to states on multiple occasions, but uh, I don't know anything about them. What's the comparison to the U.S.? How many of them are there? There are uh, 28 states. There used to be 29 up until 2019, and then a state was turned into a union territory, which is very rare and, and, and is a unique thing that we can dive into. Uh, so 28 states, uh, nine union territories, which are very similar to Washington, D.C., you know, territories run directly by the federal government. Um, and they are very similar to U.S. states, very empowered, have their own budgets, have their own um, chief ministers, which is the equivalent to governor. There is a title called governor in the Indian state system. <laughs> But that governor is much like the Indian president. It's a ceremonial title appointed by the center to just invite the chief minister to form uh, the government of the day. So it's, it's not even an elected position. The 
you know, it's an appointed position and they, they are a ceremonial role, but the chief minister is where all the power lies. Um, and states, I think, have their own uh, federal, you know, their own state legislature. Some are bicameral, some have two houses, some are unicameral. Uh, and, you know, they have a lot of empowered rights under their own. So they handle sanitation, law and order, health, uh, energy policy is, is kind of under the, the rule of the states. And there's also very similar to the United States, concurrent lists, powers that are shared between the, the center and the state. And so they have a, a lot of power in, in sort of deciding how the implementation of, of policies goes. Um, there is a unique element in India that I can point to, which is uh, cooperative and competitive federalism, uh, wherein states cooperate with each other on lots of policies. So for example, there's goods and services tax, a lot of cooperation needed to run this system and states have a lot of say in whether petroleum is taxed, whether you know liquor and alcohol are taxed. If something is taxed, you know, cigarettes, how are they taxed? Are they taxed at 18 or 25 percent? Are they taxed at 5 percent? You know, that, that's something that states cooperate on. Uh, but they also compete in a lot of ways to, you know, bring investment to their states. And you'll see states jockeying for foreign in investments and competing with each other to make sure Apple sets up a factory in my state versus your state. And so in that sense, you know, again, I think parables to the U.S. are, are common. Can you talk for a little bit about the political parties? What are the major political parties? What are their general beliefs? Effectively, two parties that can compete nationally and win seats from lots of different parts of India. Uh, that is the Indian National Congress, which dates back to, you know, 1881 and was founded by actually, you know, uh, uh, English, uh, liber liberal English men and Indian liberals to, you know, uh, talk about uh, how India can have its own self-governance, even if, if it remains a colony. And then, you know, obviously had to fight for uh, for independence. So Gandhi, Nehru all belong to the Indian National Congress. And that was the main vehicle for uh, the strife for independence. Uh, and it became a political party and has had, uh, you know, uh, several prime ministers in power, uh, largely Nehru's descendants. Uh, and then there's the main opposition party, which is now currently in power, uh, historically has been the main opposition party. It has only come to power uh, three times before, uh, including this current time, which is the part, the Ajanta party, the BJP. The Indian National Congress is is uh, what you would kind of describe as a center left to left party, uh, has a much more sort of secular view, you know, centered on secularism and rights and protection of individual liberties, um, and is sort of leftist in its economics, is, has some tendencies to be very protectionist of labor and, you know, making sure that uh, you know, socialist policies are not out of the out of the viewpoint of this particular political party. The BJP is a uh, arguably a Hindu nationalist party. So it believes in uh, a vision of India that is rooted in Hinduism and the practice of Hinduism at its core sort of center. It's not just a personal uh, ideology that Hinduism is important to me, but that the government should be perhaps reflective of Hindu, uh, you know, philosophy and that Hindus should have the rights and privileges in a what they consider a Hindu majority country, which it is, but politically they would like them to have more rights. Um, outside of these two main parties, there are a plethora of parties that compete in specific ge geographies uh, that may compete only in one state, 
but do send members of parliament uh, to, to the central government. So for example, what I, there are parties, what I call our regional, not just regional parties, but regionalist parties. They are dominant in a particular region and are very proud and will fight for the political rights of that particular region. Uh, so, you know, you'll have parties that would uh, propagate, you know, a defense of that region's particular language, its particular customs, its particular culture within India's federal system. So they will send representatives to parliament to fight for not only do we want Indian rights to be preserved, but I want this particular states and our culture and our people and our, you know, languages rights to be preserved. And I'm going to have a communication sent to that at the national level. Um, and so you have lots of these, uh, these regional parties. And so what's happened in the past is that unlike what we have currently, where one national party has won a majority, you have the national parties largely reaching out to other of these, others of these regional parties to form an alliance. So, you know, the, the Congress, for example, may get 180 out of the 500 seats and to get it over the 270 Mark, it may ally, it may have an ally, you know, that has 50 seats or 20 seats or 10 seats and mm. cobble together a, a coalition. And that's very common. And so you'll see lots of parties align on ideological, we're all kind of socialist or communist parties. And so we'll, we'll align together. Uh, or, you know, you know, we are in alliance at the state level. Let's also have an alliance at the central level. Those kinds of conversations will happen. Do the coalitions that form ever resemble the sort of thing in Israel where you have strange bedfellows like the far right wing uh, teaming up with the liberals? It has happened in the past. Um, there are, you know, uh, a regional party just out of convenience. So, for example, uh, in the state of uh, Maharashtra, where Mumbai is located, the, you know, the big financial capital of India, the Congress, which is a center left party, is in alignment with uh, a, 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 a right wing party that has traditionally aligned itself with the BJP, but there was a falling out. And so they had this mass coalition against the BJP. It was a marriage of convenience just to not have the BJP come to power in the state elections. And so you had the, the, light, the right and the left all kind of working together to prevent this, this one party from coming to power. Uh, and so that's, that's common. It doesn't happen as much in the national level. Uh, but you have, you know, uh, extremes represented within a, a moderate party. So, for example, the Indian National Congress very much depended on the Communist Party of India. Uh, you know, in the early 2004-2009 government, Communist Party of India had sort of 40 or 50 MPs that, you know, it contributed as, a, as an alliance partner to that government. And when there was a talk of partnership with the United States, the Communist Party of India was not very happy being that it's communist and withdrew its support from that government and you know you saw those kinds of things happen where extremes can kind of have a lot of power within within a particular political party or a particular government now the only thing i know about the regions of india would relate to some of the cuisine the limited knowledge i have um, if i were being interviewed about the united states i could certainly talk about something like the deep south so uh what can you tell me about the the characteristics of the regions of India? We can start right there. So there is a southern region of India, which has its own political tenor and its own political uh, parties. So Tamil Nadu will have uh, two political parties. None of the national parties have been able to take control of the state government there. It's too 
parties very local to Tamil Nadu and you know they're there. So there's the five southern states uh, that speak southern languages and have their own politics of a kind. Uh, you sort of have uh, northern India and what you call the Gangetic Plain, where you know the states that the the Ganges River runs through, yeah. and that tends to be very much uh, you know uh, supportive of a Hindu nationalist government. At least that's where the strong bastion of support is uh, for for the uh, for the current government that's there. So the Hindi Belt is sort of where you know they've been able to capitalize a lot of their support. Uh, you have the mountainous states very much up to the north. Yeah, that's where Kashmir is. And then you have a couple of other states that are on the foothills of the, of the Himalayas. You have the western sort of industrial states of Maharashtra and Gujarat, which are very, very business friendly, tend to have the largest contribution to India's economy. Uh, you have, uh, uh, it's not necessarily a defined region, but, you know, the eastern India has a lot of specific parties that are specific to their state. So they have a party in West Bengal that is very, you know, committed to that particular region of the world. You have a party in Odisha, you have a party in Jharkhand or a party in, in Chhattisgarh. So they, 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 those are disparate. They, they may not share much regionally with each other, but that is an area in which you have a very powerful party that caters only to that state. And, you know, that's an element of the politics there. And then you have what are called the, the Seven Sisters, India's northeastern states that, um, you know, go, go really into parts of, you know, neighboring with China or with Myanmar. They are geographically, even ethnically distinct from India, uh, but are very much parts of India. And, you know, we're so, you know, those seven states are, are, uh, are their own, I think, identical. I, so their own identities in and of themselves in the political sort of structure of India. Uh, and that's a you know geographically defi- defined region with its own interests. So you you have the similar sort of you know an, an industrial western part, which is kind of like the industrial northeast. You have a a southern region that is not necessarily uh, uh, has the same political ideology or inclinations as the U.S. southern, but it has its own distinct identity. And then you have sort of the the Gangetic Plains, which is you know a, a hotbed of support for uh, the BJP currently. And then you have this you know, northeastern states that are kind of geographically linked, but still a little bit like Hawaii and Alaska in that they are, they feel remote and they are remote and they have their own political identities. And, and you know, they are overlooked sometimes by the national politics, but uh, they're there and they, they have, uh, you know, they, they come roaring to the, uh, to the present when there are some specific issues, just given the geopolitics of that region being, you know, close to China or close to Myanmar, they, they come to the focus when there are major issues like that. How does the diversity of language in India contribute to the politics or the culture generally? There, there's a lot of politics around language, um, and there's a lot of uh, uh, pushback around what you might call conversations around Hindi imposition. Hindi is definitely the most commonly spoken language in India outside of English. Um, and there is a, you know, a, a large person of the population that would like India, Hindi to become the national language of India. Uh, but there are many states that have their own specific language and will use um, a defense of their language to be centered around a politics of opposition. So you'll have southern states, Tamil Nadu uh, will speak Tamil, Telangana will speak Telugu, Kerala will speak Malayalam, West Bengal 
uh, funnily enough, to the east of India, uh, to West Bengal because it's west of Bangladesh, uh, speaks Bengali, and you'll have, you know, whipping up of support that, you know, if the BJP, which has tended to be, you know, like I said, the stronghold is that Hindi heartland, the Gangetic Plains where, where Hindi is the most common language, they may be, you know, speaking Hindi throughout and, and may want Hindi to be uh, the national language. When they run for state elections, they have to be very careful about not bringing that message to the state elections. And those state parties will be very quick to say, if you let them in, we will lose our language, we will lose our heritage. They are outsiders, they don't speak Bengali, you know, all of those things. Uh, so there's that, that, that politics of, uh, uh, of language that really comes about. But, you know, for all intents and purposes, you know, India continues to be, uh, you know, working languages, uh, they're, they're uh, I think, 27 or 28 recognized languages in the Constitution. Um, there are plenty of other working languages. Parliament functions in multiple different languages, translated, you know, for, for the people that need to understand what's going on. You'll, it's much like the United Nations. You'll have, you know, a headset yeah. and people translating it throughout. Um, and I, I, I think that contributes to its uh, its incredible diversity because we've had prime ministers, you know, speak at the United Nations that were speaking in Tamil, speaking in Hindi, speaking in English. So I think it reflects a, a very unique kind of diversity of India to have many of these languages represented and, and a way to work through all of those languages and, and make sure that the business of governance still takes place. That made me think of the presidential candidates, Democratic presidential candidates, who go to Iowa and have to bite their tongue about ethanol subsidies, saying that they, oh, I love ethanol. Um, but let's, uh, let me ask you another question, a bit of a sidebar question about language. And, uh, you know, I've watched a fair amount of Indian movies and television shows from uh, the films of Satyajit Ray to most recently the, the show Family Man. And uh, I've noted that very frequently there is English dropped into the middle of sentences. Yes, Hing English is a is a defined <laughs> language amongst us youngsters, where it's a combination of Hindi and English, and you know, uh, it's 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 um, just some of the ways that we speak. I think even if I go back to India, I will use a combination of Hindi and English, much in the way that you know, uh, Family Man, you know, uh, that character Shri would sort of talk. It's very similar. I would you know probably have the same conversation style of Hindi and English kind of mixed in together. Part of that is that, um, uh, you know, people end up really growing up, I would argue in India, trilingual, uh, especially, you know, my friend circle ended up growing, growing up trilingual because you end up learning English, Hindi, and then whatever your family background is. So for example, my family's from the state of Gujarat, so I learned Gujarati and, you know, the very specific region of Gujarat, there's a, a separate distinct language called Kachi. And so I learned that. And so you grew up, you know, kind of trilingual speaking your family uh, language, the, the language that's most commonly spoken around you, which is Hindi. And then, you know, English, just if you are, you know, growing up in a city like Mumbai. So I think in that sense, you'll have languages where you'll kind of, if you can't think of a word, you'll throw in the word that you can think of. So even in <laughs> right. Gujarati, sometimes you might throw in a Hindi word because you may not, you know, think of the vocabulary. And I think as the, the, as India has grown more cosmopolitan and as, as particular urban areas of India have grown more cosmopolitan, you've had people not learn language in the same defined formal way. You've had formal Hindi or in India as they say, should the Hindi pure Hindi that is spoken in large parts of India, but in cosmopolitan parts of India, you know, that's been taken over by a kind of English uh, that people will know the syntax, the structure, some words, 
but you know, modern day words, they will just sometimes throw in English just because that's easier. Uh, and everyone knows what they're talking about. So uh, definitely a big part of how I communicate with my family will, will definitely be a big part of English uh, rather than pure Hindi. One thing that Family Man certainly doesn't shy away from is the issue of uh, the intermingling of, of Hindus and Muslims or the conflict between them. So could you just offer your perspective on that? Two of my aunts uh, married Muslim men and converted. And so, you know, it's, uh, it's something that I've, I've been able to at least see within my family, you know, how, uh, how some of them, you know, have had to manage uh, engaging with society. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things that uh, is, 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 is very different in, in a city versus in, in rural areas. I think I grew up with lots of Muslim friends uh, I grew up with non-practicing. I mean, I've had drinks with a Muslim friend of mine. You know, his his family just doesn't care, and right. you know, and, and he's a very dear friend of mine. And every time I go back to India, we'll grab a beer, even though he's Muslim. But um, you know, as as you get into other areas, it is a, a a very real fact that there is discrimination against Muslims. Uh, it is a very real fact that political parties have used the othering of Muslims for political points. Um, and it doesn't help that one of our chief rivals is uh, a nation centered around uh, a, a two nation theory that depends on there is a Hindu nation and a Muslim nation and Muslims yeah. must not belong to India and therefore come to Pakistan. I mean, that's the basis. That's a fundamental basis of partition. Uh, India, in my view of India, uh, argues that that's not true. You don't need two nations for two separate religions and India can be a melting pot. Um, but you know, when, when you do have another example to show, which is, you know, there is an othering of, of Hindus there, then why can't there be an othering of Muslims here? And, and you know, there is that kind of uh, political conversation that's increasingly happened as, as a, you know, a Hindu nationalist party has come to the fore. It's eerily similar to sometimes how uh, nationalism and majoritarianism has been portrayed even in the West. There is that element of victimhood. You will see a lot of language talking about how Muslims are invaders, they came with the Mughals. They don't come from this land. They pillaged us and they've destroyed our civilization. Hindu civilization was something great before and it's been pillaged and ravaged by, you know, the, the, the Mughals first and the British later. And so we need to rid ourselves of both Westernism and uh, Islamic culture. Uh, but I think what can't be ignored is the fact that Muslims from, uh, you know, independence era onwards, if you want to just focus on modern India, have contributed to the betterment and for the independence of India. Uh, you know, our, our scientists, our politicians, our leaders in academia, uh, sports, all of the above have been, you know, uh, uh, Muslim leaders have been well represented and, and supported in India. And so it's regrettable that current there's there's a segment of politicians that seeks to other them. Uh, and I think that's true also of, you know, some other minorities, be it, you know, lower caste minorities, which we haven't gotten into, or even to a much smaller extent, it's it's not as toxic, but to us, to an extent, it's even true of Christians or Parsis or, or Zoroastrians and, and, you know, even atheists or other sort of uh, minorities. But, but in Muslims, there's a particular, I think, toxicity around how they're talked about and, and how some political leaders would like to score points in othering them. And I think that's regrettable. You brought up caste. Can you go into that? Yes. Um, so the caste system is something that, you know, you really can't, I, there, there are arguments about its origins, but fundamentally comes into uh, an origin within Hinduism of how um, there's sort of a stratification of people based on 
uh, who, what family they were born to and really their profession. It's a combination of both of those things. So you can't change your cast ever. You're the same cast as your parents and your grandparents and your great grandparents. And it's really based on your profession and what people used to do. So for example, the Brahmins are priests. Kshatriya comes from, you know, warfare and fighting. So they were the, the lords and the warriors, the warrior class. You'll have the trading class and the merchants. And then, you know, at the bottom of the pile, as they kind of constructed this hierarchical society was um, the, the Dalits or, you know, were formerly known as untouchables. Uh, and they were the ones that, again, because of the profession, they cleaned uh, the gutters and the, and the, you know, they did sanitation work and they cleaned the trash and did the dirty work that no one wanted to see and no one wanted to do. And because of that profession and the fact that they couldn't change their caste, they were considered dirty and, you know, you should not touch them. You should not touch their food. You should not even some, some extreme Hindus went to the way. If you're, if their shadow was cast upon you, you must go home and shower because you are now unclean. And, and, you know, that's the kind of, uh, rhetoric that surrounded them. Um, the caste system legally is officially abolished. Uh, you cannot, it is not under Article 15 of the Constitution of India, you're not allowed to discriminate on the basis of caste. But the unfortunate reality is that de facto discrimination happens all the time. India does have one of the most uh, aggressive affirmative action uh, policies in that it has quotas for the advancement of uh, Dalits. So there are seats reserved for uh, Dalit scholars in universities. They have additional you know, uh, attempts to join the civil services. And I think they have you know, uh, more seats reserved for them. So that's again, a, a policy that came about in the political movement of, of the Dalit class in India in the 80s and 90s. And that's become a part again of victimization and resentment from the upper caste that feel like they're not getting their way. There's no seats reserved for us, but there is for uh, you know, uh, these other castes, but, uh, India has, that has, I think there is a lot of political science research and data that shows it has led to mobility and advancement, uh, on average. I think some of them, it's still been the privileged within the Dalit class will get more opportunities and get ahead. Uh, but it has led, I think in total, if you look at, you know, just some of the statistics on income or, uh, human development indexes or education levels. Uh, the affirmative action system has led to some advancements for that community. So the relationship between or the attitude towards Great Britain, that's got to be complicated, right? It is. <laughs> um, I think relations are not as acrimonious as you would think, but there are there are complications. Um, you know, the uh, there's there's been, I think, a vested interest in in having a partnership with the United Kingdom. Uh, partly because there's a very significant diaspora of Indians that have moved to the UK as early as, you know, colonial era, you know, they, they just settled there. 50s and 60s, there was a lot of people, you know, especially with connections that, that, that went there. Uh, people that study there all the time. There's, you know, Commonwealth scholarships and, and things like that that allow you to go to the UK. So there's a significant diaspora population there. Um, and, you know, there's uh, just a general desire for India to, you know, uh, want to make sure it has friendly relations with as many countries as possible. That's been the general tenet without getting too close and into alliances with countries it likes to foster as positive of relations as it can. And so I think that's been true of the of the United Kingdom. Now, there are issues that come up. Uh, for example, there's been a lot of conversations around um you know indian students that go there and want to pursue opportunities there but don't get work visas and and you know opportunities to stay uh 
there's historical baggage about uh, colonial artifacts that were stolen, taken back, and you know shown on display in the British in the British Museum. The most famous of that is Kohinoor diamond, which is on you know the uh, Queen Mother's uh, crown jewels, and it's you know has a rich history of being you know part of uh, uh, Indian history, stolen and taken back and smuggled in to take yeah. into Victoria. Um, there's there's those kinds of issues, but you know broadly speaking, there's a a, a a desire to keep positive relations going, both from an economic element, have trade. You know, India is one of the targets for the UK for a free trade agreement in a post-Brexit world. And so, you know, there's a investment from the British side to, you know, make sure India, uh, relations with India are, are kept up. Um, but I think when it comes to cricket, we'll always expect them to lose. And we'll, <laughs> you know, so that's where it gets particularly acrimonious. So in the general day-to-day -day conduct of foreign relations, it's, it's quite friendly and um, not at all kind of acrimonious. But... Uh, there are some underlying issues that, that really come up, you know, opportunities for Indians to go and, you know, take advantage of the economy there if they've studied there. And, you know, is that a form of, you know, uh, giving back to India after having, you know, uh, uh, run our country for 150 years or uh, the, the taking of, uh, of items in particular comes up. The other issue that funnily enough has come up is, is the UK's acceptance of economic fugitives. And a lot of Indians tend to go to the UK to escape Indian authorities after laundering money or, you know, intentionally taking out loans that they know they can't pay. Um, and so uh, that's been another recent emergence of things. And you'll see a lot of well-to-do wealthy Indians escape to the, uh, to the UK when there's a fear that they'll be uh, uh, taken in by authorities. And uh, there's now a extradition unit in the Indian embassy, specifically working to extradite these Indians back to India. So that's a new new element. It's really easy for Westerners to not realize the proximity of India and China. Can you talk about the relationship of those two countries? Very acrimonious, unlike uh, the, uh, the UK. Um, we fought a war uh, once in our history and have tons of skirmishes uh, since then. The, the fundamental issue at the heart of the dispute between India and China is the lack of a defined border. The British have left this legacy, I think, in countless places around the world, but it's especially true of the subcontinent that, uh, you know, India has, has uh, a, a non, you know, a, a, an unnegotiated, unsettled border with Pakistan and one with China and the one with China. We'll get to that one in a minute. <laughs> yeah. And um, so the one with China, you know, um, there was a desire to deepen relations even under Nehru to, you know, kind of look at these two Asian countries and say, you know, we've both been victims of, of uh, colonization. We both can kind of work towards a, you know, future in which Asia is centered. And, and there was a desire to work with Mao, Mao Zedong. Uh, complicated history, but a combination of, you know, geopolitics, China's takeover of Tibet, and, you know, just a general lack of trust between the two countries. Uh, led to a war in 1962, a very limited war, uh, where China was handily able to defeat India. You know, there was fears, I think, even at that time that, you know, Chinese forces could, could run well into Indian territory, but they, they took what they could, they destroyed him, humiliated him, and then, then came back and said, you know, we've, we've shown you the lesson of, you know, not trying to test our borders. Uh, and, and since then, uh, you know, relations have kind of been on again, off again. After 62, there was a reset in relations in 88, and an embassy was reopened, and commercial ties and economic ties became a big centerpiece of 
uh, of relations. And the argument was basically, let's not let the boundary affect the rest of the things that we can do together. And so you had a lot of uh, deepening of relations, uh, economics in particular. You had India and China working together on creating a development bank, uh, the Asian infrastructure, uh, Asian AIIB, forget, Asian infrastructure bank. Um, and then you had the BRICS kind of come together as a coalition of these emerging countries in which India and China work together. Um, but I think increasingly as, as China has become more assertive on the world stage, uh, it has tended to challenge its neighbors to kind of convey to them in, in, in not so many words that they should accept their relationship with China in which China is the hierarchical power. And so wherever there have been territorial disputes, be it South China Sea or, you know, with other, any of these other sort of countries on its periphery, it's tried to challenge the extent to which it can try and claim territory and show them that, you know, you just have to accept our growing presence in the world and we're going to test the extent to which we can push our territorial claims, even if they impact yours. And you saw that happen, you know, uh, increasingly under President Xi Jinping. There was attempts to do that at the uh, a very unique geographical location called the Tri-Junction, where India, China, and Bhutan kind of intersect. And China tried to make, you know, uh, ingresses there in 2017. And then the big thing was in 2020, right as the pandemic was kind of, you know, taking hold in April, Chinese troops in multiple points in, uh, in, in the Himalayas kind of took over parts of what are, you know, traditionally been Indian claimed territories. And it was five or six of these hotspots where Chinese troops were, you know, setting up camps and tents and saying, you know, we're, we're here to camp out. That crisis is still ongoing. So relations are at a new low because of that crisis. Uh, and I think in some points around the border, they're still continuing to kind of face off with each other. Um, and, and, you know, that's led to a general downturn in relations overall because of because that border has become uh, a bit heated. And um, it, got, it got so bad, this particular crisis, that it was the first casualties on the border for both countries since 1975. So, you know, that's how that's how low the relations have gotten in the last uh, year year or two. So, you know, I think India sees China rather than Pakistan. That's my argument. I think even Indian policymakers make this argument now that it sees China as the chief rival now rather than Pakistan, mm -hmm. given China's size, its ambitions, and the amount of damage it can probably inflict now upon India should relations really sour. And so in that regard, you know, China's become, you know, um, a country with which India is, is trying to make sure it protects its interests, be that you know, uh, standing up to it at the border, be that taking steps to protect its economy in the same way that, you know, President Trump or President Biden both are kind of taking steps to preserve the American economy from over Chinese dependence. A lot of those themes have come to the fore as, as relations have soured. So what about the dispute between Pakistan and India over uh, Jammu, Kashmir and everything else? Uh, is that ever going to be settled short of nuclear war? It's, it's been the long-standing dispute. Uh, we've gone to war. India and Pakistan have gone to war four times, and even more you know, skirmishes than, than I would say with, with China over the last 75 years. Um, I can give you sort of the, the Indian perspective on this, and I'm sure you know, uh, you know, when we've, I've had, I've, I was very lucky you know, to have conversations with you know, uh, former Pakistani government officials you know, in, the, in the work that I do. My degree was with a lot of Pakistani citizens. And so, you know, the, the real uh, uh, the reality of, of how we ordinary citizens view the conflict is very different from how the governments view the conflict. But 
fundamentally, India's argument is that um, the real issue is not Kashmir, but terrorism. That's the Indian talking point is the fact that, um, you know, Pakistan is uh, and, and certain entities, governmental entities, you know, the, the intelligence services have turned to terrorism as a tool to employ against India and support of groups that operate in the Kashmir region to undertake attacks against India. Um, you know, the big attack obviously was Mumbai in 2008. Um, and then there've been a plethora of attacks in the Kashmir region uh, in particular. And so that's India's argument is that, you know, we'd be happy to talk about Kashmir and settling that issue if you stop attacking us with proxies that are terrorist organizations. Yeah. Um, Pakistan's argument is that, you know, India has, has continuously uh, undermined the rights of Kashmiri citizens. Uh, and therefore, it's not Pakistan. It's, it's a vast conspiracy theory that they're trying to spin about Pakistan supporting terrorism. What's actually happening is that India's own muscular approach to Kashmir is creating resentment and anger among Kashmiris who feel like they don't have a voice. And I think there's tinges of truth in both of that. I think there is enough evidence that Pakistan has supported uh, terrorist organizations and that those terrorist organizations have taken steps to attack India. It's also true that India has had a very muscular approach, uh, pellet guns and, you know, uh, attacks on Kashmiri citizens, human rights violations, lack of due process are all parts of how the Indian security establishment has, um, has, you know, undertook its policy with Kashmir. And so the optimistic argument that I don't think any sitting Indian government official will say out loud, but that former government officials have said, out loud is that the, the the solution to the Kashmir border issue is to lock in the lines as they are. There's some territory that is under Pakistani control. There's some territory that is under Indian control. They are not going to go to war for risking nuclear war to you know exchange that territory. It just makes sense to create an international boundary where the current uh, divide is between the territories and just call it a day. I think that's the... Um, that's where you know the eventual resolution lies now whether there's political will on both sides at the same time to do that is the question because i think there's been political will on both sides and not been reciprocated by the other yeah, country not in the sink <laughs> and what i think has also happened at least with pakistan um is that sometimes the right hand doesn't not so much doesn't know what the left hand is doing but wants to undermine what what the left hand is doing which is the official civilian government may be very interested in talks and a terrorist attack will go off at that exact same time when a breakthrough might seem imminent. Right. And it may be because there are elements within Pakistan that want to see, and this is the argument that the military sees its existence and its budget threatened by the prospect of peace with India. If, if we have peace with India, then what does the military's, you know, 50% of GDP equivalent budget mean you know it would mean that the party is over for, for the pakistani military and so elements of that may foster some of these attacks to keep the gravy train going of we continue to assume this large part of the budget i don't want to make light of mental illness but uh it's a veritable borderline personality disorder in action yeah and you know i mean it's 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 a particular bureaucratic politics of a kind where you know one one entity within the nation state is so interested in its own interest that it might undermine what might be overall, you know, what, what the nation wants. And so I think Indian citizens and Pakistani citizens have more in common than they do, you know, uh, differences between each other. We, we share, you know, a, a lot in common and, and you know, 
uh, I think it's 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 a sad reality that you know we are not able to visit each other's uh, countries and share a lot of those commonalities, and and it gets politicized very quickly. But um, you know, it is it is that combination of of both having statesmen in both countries that are willing to take the kinds of decisions, and then making sure that you commit to it even when the process is inevitably going to get derailed. And it's really hard to do that in, in democracies where things can get volatile and heated up very quickly. And so um, I think we, we, we just need a, a better form of politics domestically to sometimes make that possible. And Lord knows we're, we're nowhere heading in that direction. Mm -hmm. So uh, we'll see where that happens. But uh, I'm not optimistic that in the next five or 10 years, there's going to be any <laughs> breakthrough, maybe in my lifetime, but we'll see. Yeah. All right, we're winding down. There are two questions left. Here comes the wild card. Talk about something I didn't address in any of my questions. This is topical because Prime Minister Modi is headed on its way to Washington, D.C. this week, and he'll be meeting with President Biden both for uh, a one-on-one -on -one meeting as well as this new grouping that is the Quad, the U.S., U.K., I'm uh, sorry, the U.S., Australia, uh, Japan, and India. And so I think, you know, uh, the the only kind of uh, thing that you know is, is going to become more important as you know we continue in this century is that you know the United States and India are are going to be partnering together a lot more as they kind of have a shared understanding of the threat that China poses from a geopolitical and geoeconomic kind of standpoint. So India is going to be, I think, one of those key partner. Uh, countries for the United States, I think across administrations, you saw, you know, from Bush to Obama to Trump to Biden, uh, a steady deepening of relations. Four presidents that probably are, you know, could 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 not be further apart have have at least found that in common that India and, and the enduring logic of partnering with India needs to kind of persist across all four administrations. Um, but you know. Um, I think I think that's probably the biggest story is that you know in the in the 21st century where we see it's it's remarkable that the United States and India are are partnering to this level. I think there's been a historical hesitancy and and skepticism about the United States in India. There's been a lack of there's been a frustration about India in the United States. I think there have been times when they've tried to partner before and India has either not been willing to commit because it doesn't do alliances. It's it's behaves very differently in its foreign policy. It's not the typical you know, let's sign the common defense agreement. And, and you know, India has that healthy skepticism of large countries that will want to pursue its own foreign policy. Uh, and that becomes hard for the United States to work with. But I think, you know, uh, it's, it's going to be the defining, whether, whether or not they partner and the extent to which they partner, that's going to be the defining story, at least from a foreign policy perspective in the 21st century. Okay, so the final question, uh, your own work, uh, what are you doing now? And where do you see yourself in a few years? I am currently um, a uh, senior program manager at a nonprofit called Indiaspora. And we work with the uh, global kind of Indian diaspora and the mission is to position them as a force for good. We've left India, come to various different countries, attained a lot of success, a lot of privilege, a lot of wealth. What are some of the ways that we can really position that wealth, that privilege to leave behind net benefit for society. That's really the mission of the organization. Um, it's a nine-year-old organization. And for the last nine years, we've been very focused on the Indian American. We've just been a US entity. And my job, which is really, really cool, is to 
take the organization a bit more global. How can we, you know, engage more robustly the Indian British crowd or the Indo-Canadian crowd or the Indo-Singaporean crowd? And that I think feels like a very unique way of doing foreign relations or, you know, kind of things like that, where, where you're taking an entity and kind of establishing new relationships and, 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 and um, finding ways of working together. Uh, outside of my day job, I'm a non-resident fellow with uh, a Washington DC think tank called uh, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. So I contribute a lot of research and writing to that think tank and writing about India's foreign relations, its defense relationship with the United States. So, you know, naval competition and, you know, what the two countries should be doing together on, on defense and security issues and how they should really collaborate on China. Those are some of the questions that academically uh, interest me and, and I spend a lot of time writing on that, you know, outside of my nine to five job. And um, beyond that, I'm interested in all things India. You know, I run a newsletter about India. I will, you know, do podcasts about India as we're doing here. And, and I will just generally bore people with conversations about India. Uh, when people will come over, I will make them drink uh, my latest collection that I've bought of Indian whiskeys. So, you know, uh, India just tends to dominate a lot of my attention. Um, <laughs> so long term, I would I would love to keep that element, you know, there. There's a desire on my part to work in government and someday, um, you know, we'll have to see uh, when and how that that comes together. Um, but uh, that would be, you know, great to be on the other side of it rather than analyzing policy to be in uh, policy making role. Um, and, you know, just to keep being interested by questions about India and, and to keep writing about them. I've, I've generally found, I think, beginning, uh, I can say with, with your class and the things that we did together, Model UN, Mock Trial, Model Congress, writing has kind of become a way in which I find myself most comfortable to express my thoughts and to answer questions and puzzles that, that are top of mind for me. And so any role in which I can keep working on puzzles, hopefully keep writing about them and solving them through writing is going to be of interest to me. And uh, I'm always looking for opportunities to do that. So, uh, uh, you know, wherever, as long as that's going to be true, uh, my career will probably head in that direction. Uh, and so I'm excited about that. I think India is just, you know, beginning its, its journey on, on kind of being front of mind for people. And it's a very exciting time to be working on India. And so... Uh, I, I love that I get to do this day in, day out. And I'm very fortunate that there exist opportunities to do it because I, growing up in India, I would not have imagined that I could have had a living, you know, talking and writing and thinking about India. So it's, it's very uh, humbling and, and exciting to be here. Amin Thacker, thank you so much for being on Bob's Just Asking. I definitely know a lot more about India than I did an hour ago. Well, thank you so much. It's it's been such a such a great pleasure to catch up with you in this format, and I can't wait to be back in Hillsborough so we can grab that meal. Tune in next week to see what more I can find out about a subject that I am not that well versed in. Thanks for listening.